I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. This week on the show, we are continuing one of the themes that we established last week. In fact, we didn't establish it last week at all. It's a theme that's been uh, running through the episodes. I think the first time I raised it was during the Tiger episode. That's the NFT theme. Now, I said last week that maybe this isn't the best week to talk about NFTs, and there's an even worse week this week, I think. Well, it certainly is at the time of recording. Um, but my guest this week was a bit of a trailblazer in the, I guess, quote-unquote underground section of music with the NFT that he launched last year, which included some publishing rights. So that was something that really interested me at the time. The potential for the blockchain to deliver the hallowed ground, the seemingly fictitious hallowed ground of automatically executing rights contracts in music is one which I think is sort of underappreciated. I mean, if that was to happen, then it really would genuinely change the game for musicians. And this tech potentially holds the key to it. So Jack Green, who is my guest this week, and his publishing rights NFT wasn't a true example of that because obviously the infrastructure behind it doesn't allow for automatic execution of those sorts of royalty payments. Obviously, the whole thing would have to be automated. Like You can't just have one moving part there. The whole thing needs to be working. But it was a real hint, as I mentioned in the conversation this week, that this could be something that could change the game dramatically. So what we talked about last week with Plastician is built upon here. Of course, the other things around it are also discussed. 
And we develop another of the themes of that Tiga conversation because Jacqueline is from Montreal. So we chat Montreal and North American stuff in this conversation too. So I think we'll just get into it. I'll, of course, be back after the conversation to chat music, chat releases. We do have a big week of releases this week, Friday the 24th of June. So I'll tell you about that afterwards. But before we get into the conversation, just leave us a review or a rating if you haven't already done so. Wherever you're listening to this podcast genuinely does help us. I think I mentioned before that we're going to be launching some sort of Patreon type thing. If it's not Patreon, it'll be something similar pretty soon. Just developing it at the moment. But in the meantime, if you could just hit that five star button, I'd be very grateful. All of us would be very grateful here. Get us in the Discord hotflushrecordings.com slash discord to discuss any of this stuff. There is a Web3 channel in there if you want to discuss your catastrophic losses on crypto. (laughs) And finally, follow the Spotify playlist, which contains much of the music we discuss, lots of Jack Green stuff, and all the episodes too. So without further delay, here is Jack Green. Jack Green, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good, man. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming. I don't think we've ever actually met before, have we? That that's kind of what I was gonna say. I'm like, I'm I'm glad you're you're having me on the show as as a means of us finally, uh, if only digitally, crossing paths. Like it feels long overdue. Yeah, exactly. I've been mostly well, I've mostly had guests who have been at least slightly acquainted with. I've had a couple where it's been like literally the first time I've, I've talked to them it's funny how the different the differences and dynamics are actually because it can be a bit too matey you know with, with um, sure, doing this kind sure. of thing with uh <laughs> with someone who gets too friendly but I, but actually also I mean the flip side of it is that you sometimes find out things about people that you uh yeah you, you didn't you didn't know before because I mean it is pretty unusual anyway to spend an hour and a half or so chatting to someone regardless of how well you know them totally <laughs> I know th- I know the feels yeah, right. But there's enough people in common and enough, like, you know, co- like common ground. I, I feel like, um, I don't know. Let, 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 let's see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, we definitely have a lot of uh, co-acquaintances, for sure. And, um, yeah, mutual friends. Anyway, I wanted to um, kick off by talking about NFTs, which is probably a topic which people don't want to hear about too much no! <laughs> right now. But... <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. Let's get it out of the way. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean... Uh, I had Plastician on actually last week who um, was talking about DAOs and the Friends of Benefits DAO and all that stuff. So I'm just linking it a little bit with that. I mean, obviously, the price action has not been um, what all of us would have hoped for (laughs) recently. But um, no, I've got to talk about it with you, obviously, because um, you were probably the, the first person in our little area of music to dive in with this. Certainly to dive in with something which actually felt like was getting or hinting at what could be achieved in this area ultimately. So could you just just talk us through what it was that you did last year and then how how did it go and all that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I had I had a few old friends uh, who had been kind of like on the developer side and and I'd like to think this, you know, the less scammy side of crypto for a long time. Like just like you know, building things on the blockchain and so on, and I, it took me a long time to even fully wrap my head around it. I it, like you know, and I kind of made a concerted effort to not be 
old head or, or, or kind of like resistant and, and just kind of like engage in good faith with it. And I kind of like signed up for the Holly Herndon and Matt Dryhurst podcast. And uh, basically, I think like I've never known the halcyon days of the music industry. Like it's always been fucked. <laughs> and, and I think and I think in some ways that's like saved me from a bit of an old head. Like, oh, it was better in my day because like, you know, the, the best we ever had it was like accelerator putting up one of your songs for free like it's not like (laughs) it's not like there was ever like any kind of like huge glory days that we've kind of like things feel a little more chaotic and and threadbare uh, now perhaps but it's like you know it's from a mediocre situation to worse it's not from like this kind of great other place and frankly I, i i really got tired of having this kind of like old head sounding conversation of just feeling like cynical and bitter about Spotify and streaming services all the time. And like, they're not ideal. I'm not, you know, I I would way rather things be another way, but they are. And I kind of like maybe the true cynic is me because I, I'm like, I just don't think I'm going to change that system. Like, I don't know that like putting my, like taking my music off it is going to do anything. I don't think that like, you know, tweeting about it every day is going to get them to change their rates. I, I think those, you know, and I, and so I kind of like felt like it'd be more constructive to try and think about, you know, what else is there? And, uh, yeah, it's, it seemed like, you know, I think, I think the jury's still out ultimately on if, <laughs> music nfts and and the crypto space at all is is um a natural fit for music i still feel like i got a bit of like a square peg in a round hole um situation like the two times i've tried things but yeah so foundation uh uh, nft marketplace um was doing some like onboarding of some artists and they they came to me on a totally you know i don't think they saw what I was going to do coming. They were just like, Oh, you've always had like a good visual side to like the, the, the music and like the work that you put out. And obviously, you know, for the time being, like a lot of these platforms, much like a lot of the internet is very like visual facing. And so like, we feel like you'd probably be able to like do something interesting with this. And I kind of like, we had it on our, like, I, I kind of like thinking about it. Like, do I want to do this? Like, what would I do f- for it? <laughs> it's actually like through kind of like bouncing ideas back and forth with my manager, Ben Rapson. And he's like, but like, what are we selling? <laughs> and like, and it was, I think his difficulty at like wrapping his head around, like, are we selling like master side or like, <laughs> and like, public, like, and he, he couldn't like, it was through this kind of like, purposefully like luddite interrogation of like (laughs) what was being what was part of the smart contract what wasn't and like did you have like rights to the work and um you know the short answer is kind of no and um i'd recently gotten out of a publishing deal and even more so than uh being frustrated at uh streaming services i think i had very very bitter and uh fraught thoughts about you know big publishers major label publishers and so i kind of like felt like maybe there's an opportunity to shake that up as well and so i i made a song made a video loop myself of like a really short part of the song and uh we sold the publishing to that song <laughs> on this auction site and you know there was nothing so hang on a sec, hang yeah. a sec, hang on a sec. yeah i've never I've never really quite understood how that worked so I'm presuming it wasn't like written into some like automatically executable. Um, it can't have been right because obviously the the sort of back end 
for automatically executable publishing doesn't exist. So, so tell me how that worked in practice. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my kind of thought was that I think if an NFT portfolio could be like, uh, comparable to something else, like it really felt like, should you be a registered publisher, like having your database of works that you represent being like a living, breathing kind of like, you know, wallet type interface where like this is your holdings and you represent them and you collect on them and like it's all automated via kind of this like blockchain culture like that that felt like the end goal but obviously none of that was in place and so you know it was a bit of um uh i think crypto people call it a larp um but you know with with the purchases of the nft um baked into that was a like a a pdf with instructions that we like you know we uh we spoke to like lawyers about it to make sure that you know the the text was okay basically one of the important things was absolving myself of tracking down whoever the holder was to try and register them because it would get very hard to keep track you know you have to stay on top of like a Theoretically, it hasn't it hasn't, you know, been sold, but like if it were to kind of like change hands a hundred times, you wouldn't want to like have to do all that admin. And so basically it's just like a simple document that put the onus on the owner of like, you know, you are custodian of this work. Um, if you are not registered as a publisher, um, you know, you need to get your BMI number, ASCAP or PRS or whatever. And then, uh, and then get in touch. We created like a dedicated email address and all that. And so that's that's how we did it. Yeah, that's pretty clear then. So sorry, I, I interrupted you. Yeah, so I mean, it, it definitely created a kind of <laughs> uh, a hoopla. <laughs> yeah. It stirred up. In- well, yeah. What was what was the what was your experience of the reaction to you doing it? Um, I definitely did not think that it would be such a big deal. I I think I think I was also like a little naive as to how much steam the entire thing was like the entire space <laughs> as they call it was like gaining at that moment and also there seemed to be other kind of like pretty successful visual artists just kind of having these auctions just kind of happen and like oh wow that's cool but like you know it just kind of like happened but um i think people were kind of not only waiting for musicians to do more than like kind of score a little 3d loop and I think that this was, I'd like to think that it was still like a worthwhile experiment and a re- worthwhile, um, you know, kind of, um, I, I, I'd like to call I'd like to think of it as, um, artistic exploration of the, of the economics and, and root workings of our industry in a way that was making people think laterally and outside the box about some of the preconceived notions of the music music industry perhaps for like the first time in a long time yeah i mean i mean to me well the, the real value in it for me like looking at it from from afar was like was the kind of hinting at that artistic holy grail or rather or the music industry holy grail of these automatically executing things which where you're not kind of beholden to these arcane legacy institutions you know which are supposed to accurately pay artists in a way that you know obviously they don't right yeah absolutely i mean i think like ultimately my my goal was kind of much more similarly wide-ranging yet modest like i would love to see uh use of the blockchain you know without marketplaces even where like 
in the same way that when you register your songs with your song with your publisher or you know with PRS or something, you would just kind of like have them exist on this like blockchain. And then every time they exist um, on Spotify or Beatport, but also whenever they're played in a store or on the radio or at a festival, like it just automatically collects and it just carries that data forth. Yeah, I mean that's the the real potential, which I don't think is really well understood or certainly not kind of acknowledged anyway by sort of critics I mean and there are kind of army there is an army now of, of NFT critics obviously particularly in music but I mean the, the other you know the other obvious one to me and it's something that we've discussed before in the show is the potential for ticketing and the kind of elimination of the secondary ticketing market which would be an extremely valuable thing for artists everywhere so it's like to me it's just like like there's, there's a lot of kind of knee-jerk reaction within music to to a lot of it but a lot, a lot of a lot of that reaction doesn't seem to acknowledge like the aspects of it which really could be extremely beneficial but see like yeah it, it, is that not just the knee-jerk reaction to kind of everything in music like i feel like we oh we, yeah i'm for sure <laughs> like in, in techno we i feel like we finally got free to the shackles of this idea that you need to use like synthesizers from the 80s that now cost more than cars to make like to make music that's like you know real <laughs> real <laughs> real electronic music can only be made by seven thousand dollar synths that are over 30 years old seems like a crazy value to peg to like music that's supposed to be forward thinking you know but it's it's just changed to like you've got to have a 20 grand modular rig instead now yeah i mean even even that attitude feels like it's changed a little bit i i feel like the modular like peak but 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 yeah your point stands i think there's just like there's just so much resistance to change and so much resistance to new ideas. And like I, I, the same people that are peddling like petroleum, limited petroleum products that have to ship all around the world to play like two songs are the same ones that are like ringing alarm bells about uh, their energy costs. Even theoretically like a, a level two um, uh, blockchain to like <laughs> run a ticketing system. It all feels a little disingenuous but yeah i mean absolutely and that kind of conservatism is something that again we've talked about this on the show and trying to try to make sense of it with a, with a few different people actually and i don't know i mean to be honest i'm not really any clearer about why it should be because i mean particularly electronic music is supposed to be a forward thinking kind of area but you're absolutely right to say that like there is this resistance to change there is this seems to be like this kind of innate conservatism in it i mean do you have any theory as to why that might be such a big thing i think yeah in on some level i think all subcultures which i think even calling electronic music a subculture at this point is a stretch but um you know all all culture i think has like uh penchant for self-preservation and i think maybe there's (laughs) From the, um, ad, I, for instance, like the advent of streaming, it has been a very traumatic, quote unquote, progress for the music industry, and maybe letting in, you know, uh, bigger sponsors into festivals. Um, there's been a lot of things where like progress was also losing uh, control over parts of uh, culture, and I think like no matter where the change from or no matter what the change means, I think there is uh, a resistance to change because um, 
kind of, I guess, like, kind of seeing it from the total, like, Luddite resistor's point of view, it's like, it is a crapshoot, right? It's like, and, and to kind of your point about, like, techno being about being forward thinking and all that. And I, I truly, really believe that. And I think, like, Richie Hahn is a really good example of, like, a guy who's been around, like, as long as I've been alive. And he's kind of always pushed himself. And, like, I've seen him, you know, he, he's... And the thing about, like, trying things and the thing about progress is that some things don't work or some things do look corny a few years later on, you know? And, and he's done things with, like, you know, running four tracks at once in Tractor and just off a laptop and, like... But but also, like, worked on, like, designing new uh, mixers that, that spoke more to the way people played today than they did 20 years ago. And... Obviously, he's had his own uh, ventures into NFTs, some of which are kind of cool, some of which were very, you know, savvy businessman <laughs> like. Um, but I, I think like I kind of commend him for at least like trying stuff and not just like staying still. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he's been kind of castigated for it, to be honest, for sure. over the years. I mean, he's obviously ma- maintained uh, like a big audience, and you know, there, there's going to be like Plastic Man fans from back in the day who will, um, like those albums will be forever important. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely one of those, one of those people. Same, same. But like, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, thinking back to like, there was like a, I think it was a Facebook post where he, where he referred to like vinyl DJs. It was some legendary thing. He referred to vinyl DJs in, in a very disparaging way. Um, <laughs> in a manner that he must have known would be extremely inflammatory <laughs> and and obviously it was but this is this must be oof got it it must be like 15 years ago or now yeah um, or, or something or something like that but he does seem to kind of revel in the kind of in, in the blowback you know but there aren't many people like him i think he's also like asking questions with that right like i think like yep. i think there's like a huge there's a huge argument to be made. Like, I, I still, you know, I, I turned my camera off here, but I've got, like, a w- wall of records behind me because I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> and, and, I, and I really do love them. And I, and I really, like, uh, if I get back from tour, like, you know, I, I, really, I really do love, like, I, I, to me it really sets a tone of being home, of just putting on, like, a, a kind of quiet record on and, and starting to cook or something like that. And, like, I love the, the visual side of them. And, like, I'm definitely... I'm uh, David Runnick coined that term like primacist of like pe- things that are rooted in kind of like our real material world, and I think I definitely have that of like though I prize my MP3 collection, I'm definitely like a digital hoarder as well. I'm like I'm very much so like a physical collector, and I love I, I like I'll go out of my way even if I don't really like tour with vinyl anymore. If if a record really does mean a lot to me or like a, a new record comes out, I, I really will like I'll walk over to my friend's record store, I'll like order on Bandcamp, and I. But I but then I interrogate it and I know that it's totally irrational. And I also have like all these misgivings towards it. Like I I actually I played at my friend's. There's like this uh, <laughs> this cool little sound bar in Montreal that's a vinyl only thing and he my friend who owns a record store also like operates the kind of bookings down there and he got me to do like a and a half secret like you know four or five hour dj set down there and i obviously it means i have to go to a store and give him like 250 bucks to get some new records <laughs> <laughs> he's got a great great scam going on but um it, no it's my it's my pleasure but it's you know, as you're kind of like engaging in that act of spending what is now like, uh, you know, 24 Canadian dollars for a record that has like two, maybe three songs on it. And, 
you know, in order to be a, a cool, relevant DJ, you would need to spend that maybe at least eight, ten times over a month. And that's like a, that's a considerable, you know, like I'm saying, yeah, exactly. Like on, on the, on the most, most, most conservative side, just to kind of like keep up, you would need to maybe do like, you know, eight to 10 purchases like that. I would maybe even say like, you know, 20, because also the ones that you hear in the record store, maybe by the time you're in the club, maybe you don't want to play that one. It's okay. So you, you, you got to have that buffers. Man, the amount of records that I've bought that like, I've never played. You know, like I, I've wanted to. I brought them in my bag, but they just never. But anyways, you kind of like you do that math. But then also, unless you live in a major city where the rent is higher, that means you're like ordering all these records in, uh, paying extra for shipping, also waiting. So even like, you know, you have uh, <laughs> we, we've found out with ways to distribute music <laughs> instantaneously and for free where you're choosing to use like fossil fuels in like three weeks <laughs> to kind of, to kind of get these two songs to your house. And like, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of insane. What, like the, the kind of, the sort of artificial scarcity, it, 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 I guess like it's really become like a, a, a sticking point for me because I think there's, I, I've gotten insane. So many like, frankly, interesting conversations with like, uh, music people about like NFTs and this idea of like artificial scarcity on the internet and it's like I think at this point any scarcity brought to music is artificial and you know I, I happen to like the records so I'm like charitable to them but they're 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 stupid <laughs> and I'm saying that Can as I, someone that likes let me, them let me just ask you to clarify what you mean by the artificial scarcity thing there yeah what do you mean by that? uh as in like like i said like music is um infinitely duplicatable and uh distributable in the digital age I mean, just just by the nature of digital music being a thing yeah right? yeah that's what i mean it's like it is like it, 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 this point specifically stands for music that now is still released like vinyl only uh because like i know i don't think i know anyone that's ever like bounced out their analog jam to tape and brought it to a massing engineer that cut like straight to a lathe. And so like, I know a digital master exists. Like <laughs> I, I know, it, I know it exists. Like I know you got it back and I know you're going to go on tour and play your digital master and you're going to send it to your friends, but make kids like fight over the thousand copies that you pressed <laughs> and, and then make other people play the, like the vinyl rip that either they did or they got on SoundCloud or SoulSeek. And so, right. I don't know. That feels like in bad faith. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely see what you're saying. It's, it's funny because, um, like last week on the show, we had a plastician on and we were talking about early dubstep and one of the quirks of early dubstep was the real obsession with cutting dub plates. Yeah. Probably the last time that was like a big thing. Right, right. But obviously, as you say, these dubs were, were all cut from digital masters. Yeah, straight free, out of free the it. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, yeah, right, exactly. But what's funny about it is like the sound of those dub plates was the sound that people knew as those records, right? Because you only ever heard them out or someone playing them on pirate radio where they were playing a dub plate. So now that these some of these tracks have gone up digitally from the digital master 
and to me they just don't sound like the same track oh that's interesting you know? because because obviously dub plates like deteriorate pretty quickly so half the time you've been hearing a, a really scratched up like you know decaying a piece of lacquer you know you know and you just figured that this kind of like and all the distortion and the scars and all that kind of stuff you just kind of associated with that music and loads of it just isn't there now and it's it's really strange it's really kind of a weird experience to listen to those tunes as they are in some cases wow that's really interesting <clears throat> i hadn't considered that that angle of like kind of like having the associated memory too i mean also <laughs> i feel like i'm like just trying to tell tear vinyl a new one here which is not really what i'm trying to do <laughs> but it is funny that like also like often the argument of like but it sounds so much better. <laughs> it's like, well, well, it sounds so much more, you know, interesting, but like better is like, you know, <laughs> debatable. Right. Um, but that, but definitely more interesting. And definitely that's, I think the, that is definitely something that's too bad about the infinite duplicatability of, of internet files is that like, there is no sense of like lived experience. Um, I think I think that I I wonder what that does to our cultural sense of experience and cultural sense of memory when things just stay perfect forever because a lot of other things like you know uh archive fashion will kind of like deteriorate just a little bit and start sagging and like older cars you'll see on the road you know even with a fresh paint job there's a sense of time with them and it's true that in a digital and even I guess like older films like you know, Martin Scorsese's doing what he can with his film preservation society, but like older film is just, you know, gets older. And I think like, it, it's interesting that in a digital era, we lose a sense of time and history in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the film, the film thing is a really interesting way of, of, of looking at it because there is a, there is a parallel there uh, with, with analog recording techniques and the way things sounded and the way things look when they're shot on real film. And the extent to which you can sort of duplicate or replicate that kind of texture in a digital setting. And obviously there are still directors who insist on shooting on film and there are still musicians who will, you know, record the tape, whether they um, go through the analog thing all the way through, (laughs) it's a different matter. But I mean, there is something in it and there's something, I don't know whether it's tangible in an artistic, sense or whether it is just sort of nostalgic in a way and actually not i've got nostalgia on a on a list of kind of themes that i wanted to talk to you about generally i think that's a really really interesting thought and i think like all those things are true at once i think like in a a postmodern art age uh i think like you know more even more so than uh the notes that you choose or the patch that you choose on a synth you can like choose to reference things i think like you know very famously quentin tarantino is doing that in movies at all a, a lot and i think like music gets really interesting in that sense and i think you can i like i i'm so not interested in someone like perfectly recreating a paradise garage record today but i think if someone were to like try to dial in like a specific kind of reverb from there to like a tambourine on one of the stems or like, you know, to really like, I think, I think we do need a real 303 on this track. Like, I I think there are ways to kind of like go and cherry pick and kind of like, I think I, I I tend to do that a lot in my music where I'm not really doing like a, a straight down the line house or straight down the line techno or anything like that. 
barely even making functional <laughs> DJ music, frankly. But but a lot of the time, like try, trying to like infer something by like you know loading up my friend's nine hundred nine or or recording uh, some some of my own um, synth drum machines, and and I don't really ascribe greater value to the analog versus digital stuff in my studio, but I like to have a mix of all of it. And I think like part of being in a modern age is that you do have everything from the past, right? Like uh, a painter working today is like aware of Matisse, whether or not they choose to like (laughs) directly do that. um, Like hopefully they're not, but like you're, you're kind of like aware of history and you kind of, you can kind of like pick and choose um, things you can kind of like, yeah, reference from that. And sometimes that is process. Like, I think like, yeah, sometimes that is like, you know what? I want to use like that two inch tape that like that one band that I really liked used like 25 years ago or 40 years ago. Yeah, it's really interesting what you said about how that side of it is more important than, than the notes almost. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of broad stroke statement, but like, I mean, there's definitely something in that. And I've, I've thought about that before. It's just like figuring out where something is going to fit is also a a kind of question which repeatedly comes up in my mind it's something i really try not to engage with because the more you try i find the more i kind of overthink that side of making music less fun it becomes (laughs) Um, but but just like yeah thinking about those the choices that you make and i suppose it i suppose it's kind of sound design at a broad level right like what is this going to what what is this going to sound like as opposed to what are the notes going to be i suppose is what you is what you were saying with that yeah and i and i and i think that all those decisions are not only loaded with emotional and probably conceptual meaning but at this point i think unavoidable cultural meaning i think like you know whether or not you use like a big heavy 808 kick drum versus a sharp transient kick drum i think like will trigger different cultural memories and cultural touch points to someone when like when you're talking about on a broader sense or like super just aesthetic sense like you know who cares it's a kick drum but like i think i i do think that like in, in our in our world of like everyone either consciously or subconsciously being these like massive media cultural libraries. <laughs> I think like all our brains end up like kind of reading and registering. I, I, you know, obviously burial is the number one kind of like obvious example for something like this. Like it goes back to like your, your conversation with plastician and like kind of like that scuffed up dub plate and like, you know, I think there, there's, there's, there's affect and emotion, but then, you know, his music is hyper resonated with like Americans that never, went to plastic people and never listened to Rinse FM. Well, the idea, the irony about Burial is that, I mean, his music wasn't played a ton at the raves. No. But actually what he was doing was making music that sounded like a scuffed up dub plate on a digital <laughs> digital master, right? So, oh God, that's some, that's some meta shit right there. Jeez. It's really good. And I, and I think to me, like, that's what makes him really good is that he's like, culture he's using like culture as an instrument in his music and he's using like cultural memory in his music in a way that's really clever and i think like really coming across his stuff when i was like you know i guess 2007 really digging my teeth into like making my own music i think like i always had a bit of a difficulty making like good for the bag like top of the record box like dj music but i think my strength was more about trying to get to like an emotional memory of like a, a euphoric moment in a nightclub and trying to <laughs> like my kind of like one liner that I've repeated like 
a hundred times in interviews around my own records was like that I'm not making music like for the club, but more so about it <laughs> and kind of like tracking my own kind of like autobiography of like, I'll even like write notes when I'll be out at nightclubs being like, Oh man, when like, when like the baseline's a little too loud for the rest of the mix, like <laughs> just writing down weird little things, <laughs> like how, how a record like feels in a room more so than like making the record for <laughs> that, that moment. And, and definitely like, Though I only had tangential uh, relationship to like, you know, I, I'd listened to a lot of Rinse and Marion Hobbs around that time. And, and I was, you know, from across the pond trying to engage as much as I could. And we were, we were buying like a decent amount of dubstep records here. But I definitely, you know, I never heard a scuffed up dub play at, at the rave uh, back then. Uh, but but it, there was that understanding like, oh, he's writing like about something. He's writing about a, like a lived experience. And that was always really fascinating to me. Yeah, that's all super interesting. I like, guess it's, it's really it's striking as well. Like thinking about, you know, being as far away as that and, and observing it as well is, is another perspective. Let me let me ask you when you were mentioning the difference of 808 kicks and the boomy kick and the clicky kick and how distinct those things are and what they mean i mean there's obviously there's the the kind of hip-hop 808 now which is such a such a key part of of the kind of sonic identity of that music and the question was or rather it's actually more of an observation and then a request to comment on it than an actual question but in my conversation with dave clark we were talking about the segregation of scenes and the fragmentation of music and the way people identify really strongly with their little corner of music and how that affects like how, how that feeds into sort of like cancel culture do you belong in our tribe basically and the extent to which the, the way people identify with sort of the minutiae of of the music that they're listening to kind of feeds into that so it's almost like i say if you don't have this 808 this particular kind of 808 in your track do you really belong in our in our club yeah 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 does that resonate? Yes, a hundred percent. I think I think this speaks more to that uh, <laughs> slight conservatism and and close-mindedness, but also I think fear of losing what is had, which is kind of so little at times in in, in music today. So it, it's unfortunate, and I think I've definitely seen it um, accidentally or not so accidentally be quite sexist in the past. Uh, or tied to kind of like, you know, external factors like that. But um, I, I get where it comes from. I get this, uh, you know, I, I think like I, I live and come from Montreal and we have in kind of a broader sense, the similar thing of like, it's a small city, you know, it's only 2 million people. A lot of people move here, especially from the rest of Canada or from like the Northeast United States because it's cheap, it's fun it's creative. It's like one of the last places where you can afford rent <laughs> if you're an artist. And with that comes like the guards are up of like, well, are you really Montreal or are you really from here? Or like, are you really uh, like, and, and even I will like find myself uh, guilty of that. Uh, and, and it reeks of insecurity. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, but on another level, I think like it also comes from like realizing that an ecosystem can be a little fragile, and if you don't watch, you know, all of a sudden you're surrounded by condos and people from France and BC. Um, 
I think the the similar thing happens in these small pockets and like on, on a micro level, it feels misguided and unfortunate because, you know, culture and music should be about like fitting as many people into your tent as possible and, and really just trying to connect with humans. But um, on a macro sense, it's like you, you, you do see, I don't know, <laughs> not the wrong people get in and ruin it for everyone, but like you can see something get diluted to the point of just being adopted by uh, either the main culture or something. And um, I mean, it, it is the wrong people though, isn't it? I mean, at the bottom of it, I mean, it's a horrible thing to say, but I mean, we've yeah. talked about this before with um, in talking about like the, like the Bergheim like door policy, for example, like Bergheim would be terrible if it didn't have a door policy. I think the Bergheim door policy is amazing and more places should have it. I, I think it's an imperfect system because the guy is, I've seen things come up on Twitter a couple times of like some extremely questionable, uh, you know, uh, race-based things like, uh, it, it, but, uh, it, which is like obviously absolutely horrible, but it, it, but in a vacuum, that idea of like the vibe check and that it's not ideally not based on like totally fitting uniform, although then that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because people want to uh, exude a Bergheim vibe and so they'll, you know, wear their Rick shoes and like specific pair of shorts. But I, I love that idea of like a, fr- a few friends of mine who live in Berlin who go out quite often get in pretty much all the time, but they've been vibe checked like once or twice of just like, not tonight, bro. Like you look messy. Like <laughs> we, we don't need this scattered energy in here right now. And, and I think there's like, there's something to that. Because even like I, I've I've also showed up like while I was on tour and I was like a little drained, but I want I've never been turned away from Berghain. It's like this like I'll knock on wood right now, and it's just now that I'm like a little older and I haven't been back to Berlin in like three four years, I'm I'm extremely scared of even trying to go back because I feel like I want to hold on to this this perfect streak. <laughs> but but there, there's been times where I was let in, and I honestly I probably shouldn't have because I wasn't like hundred percent energy and like. I'll do the efforts to not just be in the corner on my phone, but frankly, that's kind of what I wanted to do. And you know, then I, I shouldn't be at a club if I want to just be on the phone uh, on the phone in the corner. And I think like maybe we need to also self police a little more and kind of like register. Even though I like this artist, I'm so excited that they're playing tonight. If your head's not there, you should be like, ah, you know what? Like it's cool. There's there's always another party. But um. I like the door policy not being based on like, oh, how many girls you with, or like, <laughs> or you know, do you look rich, or like, which is more the American uh, school of door policy, uh, but more based on like looking at someone's soul and like, do you want this? And like, <laughs> w- it, will the room be better or worse with you in it? I think is an interesting thing. <laughs> oh, that's a that's a brutal judgment, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, yeah, it pains, it, and it's like it's that's a lot of power to put in someone's hands but yeah i mean i i totally agree that it should be a more widespread thing i mean it's very difficult to do it in the right way i think and people have got you've got to really make sure the person doing it is the right person yeah i haven't been i haven't been back to Bergheim obviously with uh with our whole last couple of years um i I think the last time i went was maybe 2019 sometime and it was amazing to me that it's like it defies all odds. You know, it's somehow uh, it's somehow still fun to be in, or it was, you know, a few years ago. Yeah, it's like it's it's different, but it's enough the same to be the same thing. Yeah, yeah, 
And obviously we're saying this is two two straight guys talking to each other. So we're already like Well, I was I was going <laughs> to Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, that, I mean, a big part of the door policy there is whether you're gay or not. Yeah. Like, I think if, you, if they think you're gay, then you'll most certainly get in. Yes. And and for straight people, it's like mm, okay, well, it's kind of touch and go, which is which is totally fair enough. I mean, it's it's a gay club, you know. Obviously. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I want to go back to something that we talked about at the, at the start, which was actually something. This is supposed to be uh, a podcast really about different aspects of the music industry, right? Like this is kind of like my theory for it. And we haven't ever really talked about publishing on the show. And you alluded to having a pretty bad experience with a publisher and i'm super interested to hear about this so so can you um, can you tell me about your experience in publishing yes so um for for the people at home uh, a publisher is someone that represents uh your catalog and yourself as a composer they they will do their best to supposedly um put, put you put you forth as far as your intellectual property, so as far as like a producer and kind of like on, on that, it's not it's not record sales. It's more working on the actual material that, that you make. And so I was in my very early twenties. Um, uh, I ended up I signed with uh, Sony TV, like one of the majors. Um, at the time, it was an interesting kind of setup. There was uh, these like younger people starting a joint venture, like a JV there, and the idea was to kind of have a, a stable of um, songwriters and producers that were uh, definitely left field, but with a bit of a pop appeal. So there was like a mix of, um, <clears throat> yeah, of singers, of writers, of producers and, and musicians who were all, uh, you know, good, good with melody, good with, good, good with scale, but definitely like from either different subcultures or slightly weirder. Uh, it, it felt cool. Uh one of one of my grave mistakes was at the time like um my manager and myself like kind of feeling like we really wanted to have a crack at like working on some pop music because i've always come from like you know i think truly what first got me into wanting to make music on a computer was like timbaland <laughs> and, and and then also like and then also like some warp records and ninja tune like more kind of down tempo like side down tempo and idm stuff but it was truly like, whoa, like the coolest people in rap are actually like Pharrell and Timbaland. Like, that's crazy. Uh, and so there, I, I have always had this like 
love and enjoyment of, of pop culture and that that's why I would sample like R&B and pop records in my own stuff. Um, anyways, uh, so, so, okay, we'll get a crack at it. What better way to do it than through a major, they have access, all this stuff, sign this deal, decent advance in hindsight, definitely, you know, not good enough for how long I was kind of trapped in this deal. Um, was it a time limited thing? These uh, publishing deals often are. So, <laughs> so, so I had to, I had to recoup a certain amount of money, but also it was not time-based. It was based on placing five, 500% of placements on major labor records, which essentially would mean 10 full beats that I would produce a hundred percent myself because you only get half of a song if you're a producer at best. Um, so best case scenario would be like 10 placements on major label records. Yikes. And then within about a year of signing the deal, the two people that, uh, I mean, I guess the two, three people that had set up the JV get jobs at other labels. <laughs> oh, this is the, the perfect scenario. Right? It's, it's the perfect, it's a perfect, very major label situation uh, where like this kind of core team that kind of understood what you're about uh, and is pitching you for interesting stuff is all of a sudden like completely gone. Uh, and there was no A&R kill clause, which I've now heard is a brilliant thing to put into a record deal or publishing deal. So that if the point person at your label or publisher is gone, you are uh, absolved of your contractual responsibilities to that deal. So I didn't have that. Um, so I, I end up like a, a desk, a, a, a folder being shuffled around desks for years and years. Like the end of like that warehouse in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, just being <laughs> put in a box on a forklift brought to the back of a warehouse. And like, I would just like every, every time I'd go to Los Angeles, I'd take a meeting with like some new well-meaning, but kind of like totally, you know, someone that doesn't have any of the cultural touch points or reference points that I, that I come from and just like not really understanding what I'm about. And then that leads to kind of like, doing these sessions with like mostly like completely random songwriters who are probably also stuck in their own indentured servitude deal on their end. And you're doing these hyper long days making music that like no one will ever hear because none of it ever comes out. They never, they never brought a single sync to the material that they did, uh, publish. Uh, when my first album came out, I think after the first quarter we found out they hadn't like registered most of the songs even, (laughs) Like, like I had sent the record six months in advance being like, Hey, here's the record. Here's the sample free versions. Like if you want to work on like licensing some of these, they're like, yeah, cool. Thanks. Thanks. And then we're like, wow. So like, (laughs) (laughs) really don't care. You you definitely didn't try to license it before it came out because it's now, uh, four months after the records come out and you still haven't even like logged it into your system. (laughs) Um, so, so it was, it was truly kind of like comical levels of, um, of mishandling and, and neglect and then we you know i managed to through through friends and through kind of like manager and then through label like different kind of like sinks and licenses came in for uh for placements for the songs big and small and i eventually recouped uh the the actual like money of the deal uh like a few years ago but they were still holding on to me based on these like major label placements and to their credit, I like, you know, got my lawyer and we like tried to appeal to their human decency <laughs> and be like, look, we're in the green. You don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Like, just let me go. 
<laughs> like, like this is this is so stupid. What are we doing here? And um, yeah, they they agreed, but there's like a, a brutal retention period on a lot of my early music. You know, I'll, another girl will be fully mine when I turn fifty. Wow. You know, so that's that's you know that's that's my experience of um (laughs) (laughs) of like wanting to kind of like really uh bet on myself and go for the big leagues and i feel like i really got like a raw end of the deal as far as uh but but also you know now it's good it's shaped it's shaped a lot of like the rest of my interactions with the music industry been much more like protective over what i do who i am um what i what i'm willing to give up and uh right lesson learned a, a brutal you know seven year eight <laughs> like eight year long lesson but um a lesson nonetheless so yeah all that to say like if i was thinking laterally about music publishing and wanting to shake it up i felt like um i wanted to shake it up <laughs> so if if it had gone well like what would it have been in, in your mind so like what did you like have in like what was your kind of best case scenario for that deal um, I think, I think back then, so this would have been like the mid 2010s, there was like, uh, some really good things happening in kind of R and B where people were, those kind of like moodier synth sounds and kind of like, uh, electronic, uh, kind of seeping in through. And so I would have, you know, love to have like a couple records on like a Miguel or Sierra album or, you know, a a Kelly Rowland comeback or something. And by, and flipping that into like the end goal being if they're theoretically your A&Rs on your recorded music as well, you know, parlaying that into having uh, more stuff like that one song I did with Tanache, like having, you know, kind of like now I think I've like tried to, fully evolved my work past like sampling R&B stuff but kind of like the sampling R&B stuff was like the end goal in my mind was always to like actually have <laughs> those singers on that music um, and, and and that felt like a, a slightly more of a direct path than just you know trying to email them from a Gmail yeah 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 totally so did you have a publishing deal before that? no my, my one and only ever publishing deal and I'm now I'm now self-published, and I right before the pandemic, I was kind of like having meetings with with a bunch of different publishers, all all kind of more boutique operations now, which makes so much more sense for the kind of music that we make. Uh, the other thing about Sony TV is that they are the largest publisher in the world, and so even if uh, you know a music supervisor for a TV show or something comes, you know, it's like. We need uh, energetic dance music with strong melody. The thing is, like, you know, Chainsmokers comes before you, you know? <laughs> there, are, there are, like, so many. Yeah, yeah. that's ahead. the thing. Like, there was, there's no holy grail with the whole sync thing, right? There just isn't. And it's so tempting to think that, oh, if I'm just in this position... Like those things all just you know, materialize for me, but I don't think I I don't think for any artist really. I mean, there there are some somewhere it just seems to happen. Like for example, I mean, like most famously that the Moby album yes. that we play, where everywhere every track got licensed before it even came out. Right? <clears throat> I think there was something like that where like not only every track got licensed, but it was like before the album came out, he was already like locked into like <laughs> millions of dollars yeah. of ad spent. But like that, that just doesn't happen to anyone, you know. So yeah, well, there there is still like you know what was it the heavy and like um, 
Run the Jewels, I feel, is probably the closest that we have to, like, Moby nowadays. I feel like I heard that one song on, like, 16 trailers uh, and so many car commercials and stuff. And then there was, um, was it called The Heavy? There was, like, that big, or that big garage rock band. Anyways, it's just, like, you know, it's, it morphs. I think also, like, dance music is not, like, the most, like, syncable licensable stuff and like by nature by its very nature of like a lot of it being meant for kind of dj sets is like extremely of the moment and by design slightly interchangeable and so it'd be hard to kind of like be cornering the market of having like i don't know i i kind of i kind of like i don't mind that you know i i've had um varying degrees of success with like licenses and and some things would come in and feel super uh promising and then finally oh they decide last minute to go with another song or something <laughs> but I, but but some things have happened and and uh truth be told in today's music industry it's like uh utterly life-changing it's usually you know you get that on one song and it changes your whole books with your label you recoup a whole album off of uh, off of one um campaign yeah I mean, it's one of those things, like, if you have a good one, then it's just like, it's a great day, but you can't count on them, right? <laughs> so, so um, right. You mentioned that you grew up in Montreal. Um, we had Tiger on the show yes. as one of the very first guests, and he had some some great insights as to the development of the scene in Montreal. And I know that you've, uh, I know you talked about him and his his influence on the, on the place in interviews before, but like, tell me a bit about, what it was like for you when you were kind of when you when you became involved in music, I guess, like in the place, like when you began to, you know, be old enough to go out to places. I'm not, I don't know. I'm not quite sure how old you are. Like, were you around for the kind of early Tiger parties, or were you too young? Uh well, I mean, he's been playing in Montreal since the early nineties. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, w- I was like four or five years old. But my a lot of my formative club experiences were at Tiga parties. I think I did my first ever MDMA at a Tiga Turbo show in Montreal. <laughs> um, I, so I'm I'm 32 now. So I was uh, I guess 16 when I was really coming into contact with um, 15 coming into contact with electronic, electronic music, and then 16 with like interfacing with it locally. Um, I through. <laughs> Through my high school teacher in high school, I ended up um, interning. And NinjaTune used to have an office, which is now solely their publisher, Third Side. Uh, but NinjaTune had their North American office in Montreal, and I was an intern there. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm young, but I'm not that young because my job was to <laughs> mail uh, promo CDs to journalists. <laughs> Right, because that, yeah, that was done. Not that young then. Yeah, so I was like, <laughs> so I I would do like menial tasks like reorganize the warehouse and like you know just uh, do some like sorting stuff on the computers, and then a main thing would be like, right, there's a new like you know the new cold cut is coming out or the new bonobo is coming out, and we need to mail like 200 CDs to like the pitchfork guy and like the NPR person and like W K R C W. And uh, they would pay me in records, and so I like from from the warehouse. So like, uh, I would kind of walk away with like two or three <laughs> Ninja Tune records every week. Um, and so like Six Two and Amon Tobin were like very big figures uh, of like a locally based Ninja Tune signings at the time. So definitely that kind of like side of like very electronic, um, but like kind of down tempo, and then some like kind of jungle stuff. 
And through spending a lot of time in the institution office, um, a lot of those employees kind of became like mentors. And so simultaneously the music they would play in the office, but also introducing me to record stores and the record store clerks to talk to, it, that very quickly became part of my life. And so after, you know, shitting on vinyl for 10, 15 minutes earlier, like I definitely, I feel like a, a sort of like artificially last of a generation of spending quite a lot of time in record stores and like talking to record store guys simply by having these kind of like older mentors that were so ingrained in like the physical side of, um, I guess, DJ culture and, and, and record buying. And Tiga at the time was part owner of a record store called DNA. Um, and very quickly you figured out the new records come in on Thursdays. And so uh, a couple friends and I had our, like our loop of like doing like, go to Adam Hart, you go to DNA, you go to InBeat. Uh, and then, you know, over time, I remember DNA with like, I have some of those early like DMZ and like Tempa releases and they, they would be, they'd be in like the drum and bass section. Like <laughs> there wasn't, there, there wasn't a dubstep section at the time. Yeah. So that, that was kind of like, that, that was kind of like what was going on for my records at home. But the, I always had like much weirder records at home. And then if I would kind of like do a DJ set, it was like slightly stranger music than what was going on in Montreal in a wider sense, because in that kind of like 2006 to 2008 pocket, Montreal was hundred percent. I mean, still is like a fucking party town. It was just like Ed Banger was King. So like, you know, busy P or like one of those guys would come every few months. Uh, also a lot of that hollerboard, like the, a lot of the hollertronic sound was like massive. So like very early Diplo parties, he still has like very many close friends here. Like all those early roots of like Philly and Baltimore club stuff was like Titsworth would play here all the time. That, that, that stuff was really big. So like, like party music basically. So like <laughs> club music from the tri from the DMV, uh, electro clash and like, electro house from like france and and like belgium and stuff was huge and then like tigo was king like there was no hotter ticket in montreal than going to like a too many djs tiga show for instance you know and that and that was definitely the dominating kind of like you know you could do whatever you want at like small little clubs or bars and like play your weird little music but but the dominant culture was um this like in, <laughs> now referred to as indie sleaze uh like crazy party scene and like some of our friends um we we were looking at some photos recently and it and it's truly like uh there was like a core group that was uh very much like the like the michael Aleg club kids like like coming out in like face paint and crazy costumes one of which was also like the drug dealer to the hipsters and so like it just is very very like crazy <laughs> debaucherous uh time yeah, I mean, it's like Montreal definitely has that vibe about it generally, like even now. Like, it's definitely got a hint of, um, I mean, where does that, where does that come from? Do you have a theory on that? Um, I think, it, I think it's a few different, um, elements. I think one is our rent back then was a total joke. I think you could, you could have like a local DJ night, like one or two Thursdays a month at like a hundred person bar and afford rent in a cool neighborhood. <laughs> like it, it, it was truly, truly outrageous. When I first moved out in an apartment, I was 18 with my girlfriend and my best friend. And we lived on like, you know, the coolest, like above this cafe called Olympico, what is kind of like at the time, very much like the Bedford Avenue of Montreal. And I think the apartment was like, 
nine eight eight or $900 Canadian total. So like under 300 Canadian each. And <laughs> like, so there's a lot of like free time, right? Like you're not, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to be concerned with like making ends meet. It just kind of happens. Um, and so that, that's a part also like our legal drinking age is one year lower than all the rest of Canada, three years lower than America. So, and, and it's, and it is like a college town in a sense, because we have these like very respected universities called McGill and Concordia and a lot of, uh, and they're very affordable, like vastly more affordable than American, uh, universities and even kind of cheaper than a lot of, uh, you know, comparable options across the country. And so there is like a constant influx of 21 year olds all the time. So there's, there's new 21 year olds all the time with like disposable income. Cause the rent still now, like, you know, obviously it's, it's more expensive, but it's nowhere near like a Toronto or New York. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 I, I, I live, I, I live in like prime prime corner of where I want to be in little Italy. And my girlfriend and I pay under 2000 Canadian a month for it. It's really insane. And so, and, and that definitely not only allows people more like mental bandwidth to kind of have fun, but, but yeah, that, I, sorry, like that's it. It's like, not only do you have maybe either a little more disposable income or you're less of like a super serious career person because your whole life is a little easier. But I think it also even like allows you a little more mental bandwidth. I think I, I lived in Toronto before this for five years and one of the most corrosive aspects of expensive rent uh, in a city, I mean, there's so many corrosive effects, but like A is the threatening of like closing on every cultural space and like, you know, bar that you put that you hold dear and kind of this constant push of gentrification. But also for a city like Toronto, the, like the cost of living is kind of as high as New York, but there's nowhere near the amount of like um, opportunities in, in like a creative sense. I think anytime you'd go out for drinks or meet up with like local DJs or promoters or artists, everyone's just like scared and upset and tired and stressed out. And like, that's not conducive to a party, you know, <laughs> maybe it leads to release sometimes, but really like it, it also guides like your booking decisions and kind of like what you're going to do. And like last night, my friend was texting me from like, this local club on a Wednesday night, just like, oh, someone's playing one of your songs. I'm like, what is even going on there on a Wednesday? And he's like, it's so and so's playing. It's like, <laughs> so like, still today, people are just like, you know, out on, on a Wednesday. Um, and I, and I think like in a broader cultural sense, the the Quebec has this kind of like joie de vivre, bon vivant nature of like, uh, it's a very welcoming, uh, you know, wanting to break bread, wanting to have a meal, wanting to enjoy life. And a lot of my friends here, you know, you'll see much less like people, people don't wear a lot of like designer clothing. People don't have a lot of like fancy stuff. They just want to like enjoy things in life, which is nice. Yeah. I mean, it's healthy. Yes, it is healthy. I was just trying to, in my mind, connect that back to France. I was in France last week, actually, was in the South. And I mean, it is nice and it's such a different mentality to the kind of well the kind of anglo-saxon kind of thing of like you know well i guess i kind of associate it with like you know, hyper-capitalism and all the rest of it in france whilst france is hardly a it's not a you know it's definitely not some like backward uh <laughs> like free historic economy or anything anything like it it's definitely got that different 
mentality sort of baked into it seemingly and maybe that's something to do with Quebec as a whole being a little bit more like that um you've also lived in New York though haven't you yes was that how is that where you met Travis machine drum uh no we met before that I we met when I was I think I was still 18 years old and either me or older friend of mine booked him for one of our parties at like our hundred person venue Travis is like the consummate producer's producer. Like we were all aware of his music and stuff like as like teenagers, which is crazy. Cause we're like a similar age, him and I, but like he's, he's just been like a prolific creative genius for that long, I guess. Um, but yeah, we knew each other. He, he was part of the, the calculus of me wanting to move there because he was living there at the time. Right. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I any any time uh, I can't say enough uh, things, good things about Travis. I think he's, and it, many times that I've felt distraught about the music industry or creativity or something, I find that talking to him helps. Uh, working on music with him is amazing. Uh, yeah, I, I have a lot of love for him. Yeah, I totally totally agree. He was a good podcast guest as well, actually. <laughs> so that was that was good. So yeah, New York. Um, so in the context of what you just said about putting on parties like so what at what point did you move to new york in your kind of musical journey as it were so like what did you reach a point where you felt you had to move or like you'd outgrown like what you were doing musically in montreal or was there yeah so maybe just summarize summarize where you were when at the point that you moved like musically yeah, so it kind of like directly relates to how good we have it in Montreal. I, I'd say I was maybe like two years into uh, this whole Jacques Green thing. And I think I I was doing it full time at that point for two years. And I would come back from tours and like that like slow pace of life where someone could just like sit at the cafe for four hours and talk shit was like just slightly frustrating. And I think I, I was 22. I think I... I wanted to kick myself in the ass. And I think there was like this ease in Montreal that was um, frustrating at the time. And uh, there wasn't anything, there wasn't any particular professional pull to New York. It wasn't like, oh, if I get here, I'll, you know, work on X and X things or whatever. It was more um, the few people that I did know there were. similar age or a little older and all felt like they were like truly treating their professional music lives like very seriously and while still having like a shit ton of fun. And it really felt like being around that kind of like energy and adrenaline. And, you know, I think one thing is kind of true within a certain when you're kind of in control of your situation. So this is not, you know, if you're priced out of your studio, priced out of your apartment, priced out of your neighborhood, that's like, very stressful but sometimes there's these things in life where you kind of choose to take on more like overhead like i at the start of the year i just i I started renting a studio here in montreal and you kind of find that like you sort of make it work you know you just kind of like either adjust your life or you just um you you just go on and i thought i felt like moving to new york and having that higher overhead just paying more in rent but also just doing more and just taking in more stimuli was I felt like it was going to pay back somehow. And I really do think it did. I think like I lived there from 22 to 25, which also is the perfect time because now I go back for like five days. And I'm like, Oh my God, like get me out of here. 
<laughs> like, I, I love it. I love New York so fucking much. I, I, it is the best city in the world. It's the, it's the city. It, it's, it's everything. But it's, like, so tiring. And it's, like, it's this crazy hamster wheel where, like, everyone is living beyond their means. Everyone is just, like, a sleep-deprived functional alcoholic. <laughs> and it's just, like, <laughs> it's so insane and like being in that insanity and like bathing in it for a little while um did wonders i think to my de- development both personally and i think professionally like it just lit a fire to my ass i like i had to like gain a a work ethic because you know it was super like super wrote things like okay your rent is x so you got to tour more and that means there's slightly less time in the studio. Okay, the time in the studio has to be productive. And, like, just getting really, like, on it as far as, like, uh, <laughs> executing and feeling like a pro. And I think, like, had I stayed in Montreal, I think it would have been way easier to be like, oh, you know, I'm going to take, like, six months to write a record. And then, like, yeah, I guess I could go play some shows. But, like, if I go play, like, eight shows in Europe, that's my rent for the next six months. So, like, okay. <laughs> yeah, so having that little bit of pressure can help on it i mean it's, it's really interesting what you're saying about montreal there because it actually reminds me a, l- a little bit of berlin definitely what i they're found, very similar cities man they're very similar. yeah 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 i mean what i found living there was that there were a lot of people who came to the city essentially to, to do music yeah and who really should have been super motivated and, and working hard but then there was this kind of like underlying just like atmosphere in the city which just leads you to just you know just go out all the time and you know the rent again is like not providing the kind of pressure that it does in in other places and it it definitely leads to this kind of i think it's a weird mentality because it's like everyone is is super into what they're doing but it's like there isn't that kind of um there isn't that kind of pressure to to actually achieve stuff there's no sense of urgency there's no there's no urgency yeah right yeah and it's and it's a fine balance right because those external pressures can become so uh suffocating that like either it guides your creative decisions into making like, you know, uh, the, the dreaded selling out or, or you're just, you know, so it's so stifled. Like I think Toronto, I've known so many people that have had to take on day jobs, even though they were like super talented musicians, just because there was no, like, you just have to. And, um, you know, and I will say like what I, what I am happy, I'm really glad that I moved to New York at that time because it really got my head on right and kind of gave me that kind of attitude. And then after a few years, I was like, oh my, I, like, I think I kind of like zoomed out and saw the matrix code. And I was like, wow, like the thing about New York is like, if you get more successful, you're going to, f- all that means you finally move out of your shithole apartment and you get a more expensive apartment. And, you know, maybe you'll go eat at a slightly nicer restaurant than the restaurant you used to eat at. But, like, no one is ever, like, not broke. (laughs) You're just at different levels of nice, but you're, like, the pressure stays the same, right? It's like, (laughs) oh, you got 100 more square feet in your house, but, like, (laughs) you're working, like, 10% harder for it or whatever. And I think, like, I think once I got to kind of, like, that understanding and also, you know, I was... I had a uh, Nick Hook, a good friend of mine, was like letting me use like so much studio time for free as thing. But I was like, I'm never really going to be able to afford either my own studio or my own apartment that is like soundproof enough that I can have a studio in it. This feels like it's kind of like uh, there's a fine balance here that if something gets lost, I would have a very hard time making music here. Um, 
And so I left, but I think I, I'd like to think that I still took that mentality with me. And so after like a detour of a few years in Toronto, uh, it, mostly for like personal life stuff to like move in with my partner who is like, she was Canadian. So kind of moving to the States together was a little complicated. And we just kind of like settled on Toronto sort of accidentally and like sort of accidentally spent like more years there than maybe we should have. But now I've, uh, I've come back to Montreal, I think at the perfect time in my life where I think I can, uh, if, if I have the time, I can really kind of like go out to a, a really fun dinner with some great friends, uh, go to a rad party. You can stay up as late as you want if you want to. But also I can, I'm like in a place in my life where like I'm renting a little studio, like that's a 20 minute walk from my house. And I know when and when, where and when to like put the blinders on and just focus and make some music. And now because I have like that kind of self-discipline, it means that I can lead, live comfortably within my means uh in a responsible budget but also have access to like what i think is a really fun city and then also you know a one-hour flight away from new york or whatever that sounds like a pretty good arrangement just just going back to new york though um, what was the point at which you decided to to leave like was there a hard kind of inflection there or was it just a kind of you know it was time yeah um it was really like at, at that point i it, it was really just like a self-reflection once uh I had been dating my, my current partner kind of like long distance at that point for a while. She was working as an ER nurse in Montreal. I was, you know, in New York. And so I, I was like, kind of like, you know, try as much as possible to like come to Montreal, spend time with her. She would come down to New York, so like stay with me. And we were kind of like looking at different ways to kind of move in together. We, we had explored of like me kind of like sponsoring her on my visa and like her coming down to New York and stuff. And I think like that was then part of like, I think like th after three years, you do kind of like take stock that that feels like a bookend or like a chapter where you kind of like think like how things are going and things were going like well and I loved it. But I was like, I think I was gaming out the possibilities of like, okay, like an underground, <laughs> an underground dance music producer, like. What, what, what does that look like going into like your thirties and stuff like in New York city? And it felt like either needing roommates or, <laughs> yeah, right. or like, yeah, yeah. I, I just didn't see like my, my life ascending to kind of like the level of comfort of, um, sure. It's sort of a bleak future, isn't it? At that point, he's just like, Oh, where is this really going? Yeah. And you know, it, it, and no diss to like the friends of mine who do like make it work. And I think like, the, the weird thing about New York is I feel like everyone always just like has a weird like hack. Like they do find that one rent control department or like they do like they do like secretly like private like shoe launches. They'll DJ shoe launches for Nike for like <laughs> four figures like once a month. Like everyone has like a weird thing in New York, like <laughs> uh, where, where they make it work. And I think like like I said earlier about like taking on overhead and like your life sort of ideally figuring it out i do think that maybe i could have figured it out but i think like with the external thing of like needing my girlfriend to be legally allowed to live there it, it was also like super complicated so it was like maybe this feels like a natural end to this okay a couple more things that i want to go into and they're kind of related to each other like you've released a couple of albums both on lucky me i'm pretty sure they're both on lucky yeah me. they are is that right yeah yeah so we talked about your uh publishing deal nightmare <laughs> um, 
have you ever had a like a long term record deal? Is, is that your deal with Lucky Me sort of record by record, or is that it- is that is with them? Yeah. So no, it's a it's a three album deal. So I have uh, I have one more album with them right now. Okay. So what do you think about labels <laughs> at a very general level? Because obviously, well, this is another topic that we've covered a fair bit on the show. Like the um yeah the de- the demise or not of the record label. Like Lucky Me is pretty well respected, like underground label for sure. They're based in, in Glasgow, right? Um, mostly they they split between uh, the two guys. One is in London, the other one's in Edinburgh now. Right. It, it was initially started in Glasgow, and also they are half owned and distributed and operated essentially like by Warp Records. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. So ever since my, I think maybe one or two EPs before the first album, so it would have been like around 2015, 2016, so a while now, um, Warp has been in the mix. Frankly, I understand maybe the resistance to labels. Um, I am personally so not interested in, uh, I'm like so thankful for the service that they bring me on a, on a super basic level, like I, I ran a record label for a couple of years called Vase um, with Joe Shabadoo, and I f- spent so much time like r- registering and em- like masters to IRC codes and like setting up like reviews and interviews with the artists that we signed that didn't have you know their own management to do that for them, and I just felt like I was interfacing with like every part of the music industry that I wanted nothing to do with. And I think it really gave me a, a, a very good appreciation for, um, on a basic level, what, what Lucky Me have offered me. But also, I think, obviously, don't sign deals that are too long. You don't want to be uh, somewhere for too long. But traditionally, third records are where like acts with longevity kind of turn a profit. And I think a good label, more importantly, a good A&R, will sustain and foster your your creativity and long game artistic vision i think like a a bad label will stifle you and like tell you when and when not to release music and and have this unhelpful input but i think because i was kind of friends with lucky me guys before ever releasing music on them and then we kind of like grew alongside one another uh, through those first kind of like singles and EPs that I did with them. Not only back then, it felt, you know, kind of a no-brainer, honestly, at first to kind of just go with them for, for album. I, I had I had had conversations with a couple of the labels at the time, and some moved like pretty far along. And, and ultimately, it felt kind of nice to kind of continue that um, corresponding growth. Um, I really like. Did you the, have a key idea about what? Sorry to interrupt you there, but no, like, no, go ahead. did you have a key idea about what you were, what you wanted from that deal? Uh, that is a good question. I feel like I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember it back then. I think I was already, I think before that, a couple of years before I did my first record in 2017, I had like tried to do some like album demos, and I was really in my head about what's a EP track versus what's an album track. And I think by the time we were like ramping up to the first one, I think I just had this one period where I just like wrote a lot of music and it all really like corresponded to one one another. And to me, it felt like kind of like a natural growth from like where where the EPs were at right before. And 
I just wanted someone that could, <laughs> especially because by then already my A and R's at Sony TV had fucked off, and so I knew that you know Dominic Fl- Dominic Flanagan, who's like kind of one of the two founders and one of the two like kind of main a- like A and R's at Lucky Me. I just knew that any time we chopped it up and like spoke, there was like a very mutual understanding of what I do, what it can be, where it sits in the greater cultural conversation, what it could be, you know, and and it felt like I, not only would there never be any friction of wanting different things, but that we would probably know ahead of one another what the right decision is uh, based on, you know, it, whether that means... Uh, how much importance do you place on artwork? And um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I think there was just like a, a good understanding of like the the positioning, and like so far it's been really nice. I always rail against them. <laughs> my most my most cliche complaint whenever we do talk about like the goods and the bads of where things are at, I'm I'm always like, whenever we put up one of my songs on YouTube, I go to the comment section. And it's only positive comments, and I need I, I want negative comments. Because if I'm only getting positive comments, that means that I'm giving you guys good music, but then you are only playing it to people that already like me. And we got we to gotta find a way to like break out of that and speak to people that'll be like, I don't know, what the fuck is this shit? You know, like... I, I, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, that, <laughs> you know, so we're, we're all trying to crack the code of like speaking outside of our echo chambers, I guess. But I find that like yeah, well, I mean that's the nature of the business. Yeah, of course, of course. But I think my experience with my label, so I can't speak to like others, has been that I I cherish having a wider group of people to kind of like you know send four demos to and be like, is this a good direction? Like, how do you feel about this? And whether or not I choose to listen to that advice is besides the point honestly but it's nice to have that kind of like bouncing board and then they've also assisted yeah, how them. much how much do they get involved in the in the sort of like directing you not much at all not not really <laughs> I, um like like on my last ep that came out in january it was like oh wow this one sounds good need us to do anything like <laughs> i was like no i, th- I think like cool i just wanted to make sure like you're into it like it, it it can be as like um far away as that or it could be like uh let's crack our heads like what would be a good feature on this which i mean that's always been kind of a frustrating process i don't think i've ever like it, it's working with featured artists is complicated like a very organic collaboration between friends whether that's a vocalist or producer is like such a, a fun process but like trying to set up the batch of instrumentals that you're going to get to that other person's A&R is a very uh, deeply frustrating, dry experience to me. Um, yeah. But yeah, I find, I find that like, yeah, I also like the curatorial house aspect of a label. Like I think, and maybe this comes from like that time spent in record stores where like you would kind of flip through a shelf and like the minute you see the Tempa logo, you got to listen to it. Like, yeah, and I and I like that um, that context that's provided by being on a label. I feel like, to me, every single artist in the world being like self-released solo islands feels like chaos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, there is something 
there's something kind of uh, that I find personally kind of reassuring about the you know, just the, the logo, the kind of stamp of quality. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're, you're totally right. I think I sometimes while I'm working on music, it's very hard to see the forest for the trees or to zoom out. And so, you know, I could, I could theoretically hit export and hit up a mastering engineer and upload something to Bandcamp at any time. But having like some people whose taste I trust on a Gmail being like, yo, this is dope. Like, let's release it this fall. That that is like a, that that is like a huge mental step for me to then like take the project to the next level and like start thinking about like okay well cool like what does it look like and like I'll, I'll get excited as well because I think like it's so hard to really um, yeah zoom out and, and see yeah I mean I've I've found that super difficult as as someone who's released almost all of my own music it can be yes. very difficult without that kind of. Because I mean, the, the few times I have released with other people, and also when I've had other, other people in the process, having that kind of like validation, I guess, you know, is just can be just so helpful, you know, and just like, well, again, like reassuring. But like where we are now, there's like, like you say, like there's there's so many more people doing it in, in some variation of the self release, you know, because there, there are so many more ways of doing it now and there's so many of course. different processes um some of which are good you know and you know people have had obviously mixed uh mixed relationships with with labels i mean it's certainly not uh well i mean the label is is i mean it's largely as good as the people that are working in it you know yes like so if you have a great nr who you nr who you get on well with then it can be can be a brilliant relationship i feel the same way about booking agents yeah, 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 totally. I mean, I actually, I get asked by all the time by new new eyes, like, what what agency should I be on? And the answer is like, what agent should you be with? Exactly, exactly. You got to try and have those conversations and see if there's like, for me, it's all about common ground, ground and making sure the goals are aligned with whatever anything that you do, whether it's working with another artist, whether it's being booked for a party by a promoter that's like slightly more bespoke, whether it's your agent, your publisher, your label, it's about like being honest with yourself <laughs> about what you want out of something and what you want out of your career and what you want out of life and being honest with other people and making sure there's that like, okay, cool. Like you understand what I do and who I am in the greater musical conversation and like where I should be. And like, and you know, and, and sometimes those things diverge over time and you got to kind of course correct. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm extremely happy currently, for instance, with like, my American book agent who used to be a liaison, her name is Bailey Greenwood. And she's just like total sweetheart understands rave culture. She's been a part of it. Like her whole life used to like be a photographer at this trans bar in San Francisco and then like drive acts to and from these raves, then worked at liaison kind of crushed it on that corner. And, uh, somewhat recently, uh, moved to William Morris <laughs> which is kind of scary. And she, and she didn't take many interacts with her, but she asked if I would move with her. And I was like a little apprehensive about moving to such a, you know, big pond, uh, booking agency, but ultimately having her in my corner, that person is just like, she just knows exactly what I do and what I do well and what I don't do well and, and what kind of environment I want to be in and what kind of, and like, and she knows like, you know, when to, to, pressure that promoter for like an extra couple bucks, but also which promoters not to do that with. And like when it's time to just like do this cool little underplay somewhere or something. And so 
I definitely think the same goes to like a record label. You could be the best label in the world, but if you have uh, either some, you know, cynical over the hill A and R or younger A and R that is like, I, it, like so many things can go wrong, right? Like you could have like the the best building, but <laughs> be dealt an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So last thing I want to talk about is albums. Yep. Um, as we mentioned, you've released two. The first question I have for you is one that I've asked basically everyone who's been on, which is like, is there any point making an album in 2022? Like, is the format like still relevant? Uh, I think I think that has to come from like within as a question you answer to yourself. They're they're relevant to me. I think a lot of the way I consume music is still album based. Whether that's a lot of the records I still buy are like because. I'm like DJing out less now, like a vinyl. Uh, most of the records that I'll buy will be full length and I definitely like to have them on in the house. And even the way that I interact with streaming platforms when I'm like driving, honestly, even like with friends are over, I love to put a full album on. I like to step into like one vibe for 45 minutes. Um, and so they're handy to me uh, as a listener. I really enjoy them. And I find that as a creator, even if you don't have some like massive concept or like thing to say, (laughs) um, I think they can be a handy way to force yourself to slow time down a little bit. Because I think if you're just working from single to single, it can feel so like you're like a rat in a maze or something. And and that kind of like clip of like one, one song, some DJ sets, one song, some DJ sets. uh, It's very easy to feel like, maybe the output feels a little frayed and like time feels frayed. Like you just like kind of like you're in the flux of like (laughs) this thing. And so already like I've always enjoyed working in like the four track EP format more so than like just singles because I felt like I could like, okay, cool. This is what I made this spring (laughs) and, and kind of like create it, create a bit of a world on there. And to me also (laughs) it like, instead of having all the spotlights on like one piece of music, you can kind of like divert it across four. So it feels a little less like stressful <laughs> to just kind of like put yourself out there like on one song. That completely, yeah, that completely makes sense to me. There's nothing I hate more than having like the, the kind of yeah. like pressure of like this is the single, this is the track. Yeah, exactly. Like, no, if it, I can just dilute this down and take people's attention off any one particular yeah, thing. That's exactly. That's exactly what I'm doing. And like ultimately, I'm working against myself because the label is going to launch like you know one track first. There is a single on each EP, of course. But I think while I'm writing it and while I'm like putting it all together i think it helps my decision making process if it's like yeah diluted a little bit and then as far as the album i think like early on in my career i i tried to force it because i was such like a fan of albums it's like oh i gotta i gotta make a statement and like it, it really didn't happen for me and it was more um a period of like just uh fruitful creativity and just making a bunch of stuff and then feeling like oh my god i've got like you know 25 tracks here and then like whittling it down and like um, it feeling like, oh, the natural step is to just do this. And, um, and the way the second one happened was like slightly different where I think part of it was like a fear of a sophomore slump of being like more stuck on the second record. And I wanted to kind of fight that. And I just kind of told myself, uh, I guess it was like the first half of 2018 or something. I was like, I feel like I'm now fully like a professional recording artist. And that means just being professional and record and between 
<laughs> and literally between like Toronto and LA, I went to um, Hudson Mohawk at a great studio at the time uh, on, on Hillhurst with like a great, like a, a little studio B that he let me have for free. And so I, I spent the bulk of like that kind of like early, uh, the early third of 2018 in his studio. And I just go every day and make sure I made like one or two things, like just hit export on one or two things every single day. And I just did that for like two months and had like 70, like 60 or 70 tracks. And then like, and and, and I just wanted to have this, like be less in my head about something, but just try to like capture like a moment, um, a moment in my life and just try to not, not be too in my head about it. And then, yeah, it just kind of like came together. Yeah. So I think, I think now it's more like dealer's choice, right? It's like, I don't know that they're prerequisites. I still do think parts of our, uh, music industry at large in the media and stuff will wait on an album from an artist. And there's definitely like a finally like, Oh, they have arrived, um, moment when they finally do a full length, you get different kinds of press, you can line up different kinds of shows. Um, all that kind of stuff. But I think like it, it, uh, that part of like allowing it to like slow your life down a little bit is kind of nice. And then kind of thinking in larger chunks of like, kind of like eras for yourself of like, okay, now I've written an album. Okay, cool. Now it's time to invest in a new uh, stage show. Like call up Sean Murphy. Like let's design some new lights and like um, what should the live show look like for the next two years? And I, it, it's allowed me to kind of like organize my life a little better. It's, it's funny though, isn't it? Because I mean, you're, you're absolutely right what you say about you know the way that, that you get different bits of press and people just seem to take it a little bit more seriously. But yeah. actually, but the way that people listen to music now, it really has moved away from that. And, and I, oh, and yeah, I kind of hints at this, like and what we were talking about before is like conservatism in, in scenes generally, but I think like there's just conservatism in, well, there's a, maybe it's maybe conservatism is the wrong word, but like inertia in the music industry, you know, like there is this kind of tendency just to kind yes. of like you know, shoot along as if nothing has changed and, you know, belatedly wake up to, to this new paradigm at some stage. But, um, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Like, I mean, albums are just like just putting one on and listening to a whole thing all the way through is just a different, it's it's just an inherently better experience than listening to a playlist of a bunch of random tracks for me. A hundred percent. Cool, man. Well, this has been great. Thanks for doing it. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, man. Yeah, that was Jacques Green. And after I finished that conversation, after I got off the phone, I realized I kind of ended it slightly abruptly. I wasn't planning to do that. And I forgot to ask him the question about favorite albums, which is usually a nice way to finish. So sorry if you're waiting for that. I'm not completely sure why that happened. But I mean, we got a good hour and a half regardless. And there was some really interesting stuff in there, particularly about publishing. That was an area that I didn't completely anticipate getting into in the level of detail that we did, but it seemed like a great opportunity to do so because we haven't talked about publishing at all on the show so far. And as I mentioned, this is supposed to be a show about the music industry broadly, and it's something that I want to kind of build out. So publishing is a bit of a an opaque subject to many people, certainly the people starting off. So it's good to be able to dig into that a little bit. It wasn't so good to hear his horror story <laughs> with major label publishers. So sometimes it does seem like the Holy Grail, being on a major label publisher because of course they can get you all that great stuff theoretically but you know as we talked about you're always at the mercy of who is working at whatever company you're signed to whether they're actually gonna be in your camp as it were anyway it was great to discuss that 
it was also great to discuss the challenges facing musicians, all that stuff about rents and the similarities of Montreal and Berlin. Super interesting too. Anyway, on Hot Flush and affiliated labels this week, got a few things. I forgot to mention the Rhythm Nation release last week, which was James Welsh remixing Jason Winters, Jack and Todd Lost City. That's a really great track and the original is great too. So if you haven't checked that out already, then do check that out at hotflush.bandcamp.com. Dropping this week, we have the second part of the BM6 EP on Who Whom. It's called Highway, Highway, Too High. Three tracks building on the two that came out a couple of weeks ago. That's some really smart techno in there. Really into BM6, love his stuff. And that's a great EP, in my opinion. So check that out again at that Bandcamp address. And finally, Glaskin remixes. The full EP of that is out this Friday. So that's remixes from ETAP Kyle, me, Baby T, aka B Traits, Uncrat, Isaac Rubin, and Planetary Assault Systems. So that is a great package of remixes. That is on Yale Trip, their label. So yaletrip.bandcamp.com. But as I've mentioned before on the show, they're kind of linked to us over there. And of course, my remixes on that EP. So another reason to support it, perhaps. Right. I guess we're pretty much done here. Last appeal for a review or a rating. If you haven't already done so, hit that five-star button. Leave me a gushing review on iTunes, perhaps. Join us in Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. And finally, follow the Spotify playlist, which contains much of the music we talk about on the show, plus all the episodes, of course. This was a great episode with Jacques Green. It's great to finally chat to him properly. And it's great to have these long conversations every week generally with people, I have to say. That's the main plus of doing this show for me. It's just having being able to dig into stuff with people in a way that you never normally do. So we've got another one coming up next week. And um, I guess I'll see you back here, same time, same place, for the next episode of the Not A Diving podcast. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.